So today officially marks the end of our two-year journey through the glorious gospel of Matthew. But the reality is that Matthew 28, 16 through 20, more properly serves as a launching point rather than a conclusion. It serves not just as a launching point for us in sharing the gospel, it served as the launching point for the spread of the gospel from the immediate region surrounding Jerusalem, literally to the very ends of the earth. The entire gospel of Matthew has been deliberately marching to this point. It has been building toward the climax since chapter 1 and verse 1 announced that we were reading the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We saw at his birth that both wise men and foreign rulers bowed before him, even as the reigning regional king attempted to slaughter him. The moment, the moment he opened his mouth, crowds were stunned. He spoke with a, a magnetic authority befitting his majesty. John tells us that once the Pharisees sent guards to arrest Jesus, but sometime later, the guards came back without Jesus. And when they were confronted, they said, what's the deal? And the soldiers said, no one ever spoke like this man. In these pages, Matthew also records that Jesus did things that no one else had ever done. Demons feared him. Disease obeyed him, and death itself submitted to him. But shockingly, Jesus then returned the favor. But then after three days, this crucified king walked out of his tomb. And he ascended a mountain to issue a proclamation that has done more to shape human history than any other words spoken before or since. The account of this decree serves as our passage this very morning from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Brothers and sisters, Hear the declaration that set the world on fire. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came 
and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Spirit, would you do what you desire to do among us now? Whatever that is, lead us. Lead us, please. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So our... Our main focus this morning is very straightforward, and I mean it to be so. Our main point is this. If we don't obey this command of Jesus, we've just wasted the past two years in Matthew's gospel. If we don't obey this command of Jesus, we've just wasted the past two years, walking through Matthew's gospel. Now, my desire in stating this up front is to convey, to convey the sense of urgency that I believe this commission demands. The reason I think this is true is because of what I described in my opening comments. It is not a stretch at all to say that these closing verses form the final climactic summary of the entire book. There is a drumroll in Matthew's gospel that began in chapter 1 and verse 1 and has continued. It has crescendoed and culminates in these final verses. All Authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In other words, in in light of everything you have seen, in light of everything that you have heard, in light of the authority given to me, go, go, go. This is the nature of the commission. Share the good news with others. Teach everyone everything about me. Serve them while you share with them and by sharing with them. Or to paraphrase Jesus, go fill the 3D mission that I've given you. Declare, disciple, demonstrate. Thank you, Mark. Go, go, go. This is the call of the Great Commission. It is great in scope. It is great in its goal. And it is great in its sense of urgency. If we have only studied Matthew, but it has not or does not lead to sharing and serving 
then we have just been self-indulgent over the past two years. Therefore, with this, with this sense of urgency before us, let's look more closely together at our passage. In verse 16, the 11 disciples take a long walk to a familiar place. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Galilee is about 100 miles from Jerusalem. By any measure, that's a long walk. The reason the disciples are heading this way is because the women who had gone to the tomb told them that both an angel who came from heaven and Jesus, who had been dead for three days and was now reportedly alive, directed the women to tell the disciples to go to Galilee. Chapter 28 and verse 7, as well as verse 10. Now, don't you wonder what they talked about along the way. I can only imagine what, what questions were going through their minds. I wonder if they felt excited or nervous or confused or cautiously optimistic. Or maybe they were even fearful. Remember what Matthew told us earlier in chapter 26 and verse 56. In Gethsemane, when Jesus was arrested... All the disciples left him and fled. And now he's back. That's what makes the specific words Jesus gave to the women back in verse 10 so powerful. Go and tell my brothers. This is so vintage Jesus. Not go tell those gutless cowards. Go tell those pathetic deserters. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. Make no mistake, this walk itself is an act of faithful obedience. But I wonder if they were encouraged to even make the journey at all simply because Jesus referred to them or reminded them that they are, in fact, his brothers. Now, Matthew adds an interesting additional detail in verse 16. The disciples were not just directed to go to Galilee by Jesus, but to a, a particular mountain. Recall all the way back in chapter 4 and verse 16, that after John was arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Now, Jesus directs them back to the place where his ministry started. To a place, Matthew reminds us, that Isaiah described as, as Galilee of the Gentiles, where people dwelling in darkness 
have seen a great light. This is where it all began. It was walking along the the Sea of Galilee where Jesus first called Simon and Peter and Andrew and where James and John literally left their father Zebedee standing in a boat. Now the text doesn't say he was standing, but I guarantee even if he was sitting and the guys got up and walked away, he said, got up and said, guys, seriously, where are you going? But such is the nature of the one they were following. He demands allegiance. In chapter 4 and verse 23, Matthew describes the impact of Jesus in the region of Galilee. Recall that this, each one of the people impacted here is as real of a person as you or you or me, with thousands upon thousands of details making up their individual lives. And he describes Jesus' impact in the region like this. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Indeed, they have seen a great light. Imagine the memories that would have come flooding back to the disciples as they climbed the mountain to which Jesus directed them. The very mountain, chapter 5 and verse 1 where they heard him preach a sermon you may have heard of, the Sermon on the Mount. I remember once walking through a neighborhood near Cincinnati where my dad grew up, and it, was, it had been at least 40 years or so since he had been there, but it was fascinating to me as we walked through Uh, the streets of that neighborhood, that he could recall individual houses and specific names and a tremendous amount of detail, including that he would walk to his friend's house every Sunday night to study. And they also happened to have a brand new TV, which was the newest thing going. Now, I have no doubt that there were a million memories flooding the disciples' minds, and hearts. And I have no doubt they knew the exact spot on the mountain where Jesus was going to meet them. The very same spot where he first opened his mouth and declared, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It was on this spot where the people were stunned by his teaching. For he was teaching as one who had authority, not as their scribes. It is on this very spot that he is about to declare, in fact, all authority has been given to me. As they approach this spot, eventually their eyes behold their friend or to use Jesus' words, their brother, who also happens to be the resurrected king of glory. And when they saw him, 
they worshipped him. But some doubted. I love how Matthew describes the reaction of the disciples. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. One of the notes of utter authenticity that is sounded again and again throughout the Gospels is that Matthew and the other writers are not afraid to include details that actually don't help their case at all. Whatever it is that they're arguing or describing. But the details are true. And these details so often help us to better understand the nature of our own hearts. They worshipped, but some doubted. Now, if you were there, try to put yourself in their sandals, I guess. If you were there, isn't it possible that this thought might cross your mind? Is this really happening? Is that really Jesus? Now, I certainly don't mean to to mute Matthew's point here, but the word that is translated doubt here is a word that can also mean hesitate. Think about that for a moment. I think it helps us to understand the nature of how some, at least some of the 11 were feeling at this moment. It's the same word that Matthew used when Peter started walking to Jesus. That is, when Peter started walking to Jesus on the water. And Jesus said to him, when he began to sink, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Do you see the the nature of it? In other words, why were you hesitant to trust me? So Matthew may be communicating that at least some of the guys, when they first saw Jesus, were hesitant to trust what they were beholding. They doubted what they were even seeing with their own eyes. In a sense, much like Peter, they were expressing little faith. Have you ever been in that exact spot? Kind of worshiping Jesus, but there's these nagging doubts that keep recirculating. The reality is that even when the disciples, think about it, just just process this. Even when the disciples laid their own eyes on the resurrected Jesus, they still struggled to fully grasp the reality of the good news. That Jesus was, in fact, really alive. We find ourselves in the same boat often. Lord, we believe. Help my unbelief. Now, it is important, I think, also that Matthew points out that they worshipped Jesus. And that Jesus received their worship. The reason this is so important is because... It's because of what 
John Piper explains in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. So this is a commission that has an end point. Further illustrating the sense of urgency here. The foundation, the fuel, and the final goal of missions is the full expansion of what we see here in the text in in kind of embryonic form with the disciples as they approach Jesus. And that is people gathered around Jesus genuinely worshiping the living God. Revelation 7, 9 and 10 describes this picture in an incredible way. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Picture this in your minds. He continues. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders. And the four Living creatures, you remember them, right? With all their sets of wings and eyes all around, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The future reality is that this will be our reality. This future reality is the truly awesome ultimate goal that fuels missions. Therefore, that means that our two years in Matthew will not be wasted. It will not be wasted if you have come to worship this God, the God described in these verses more fully as a result of our time spent together in the book, if, 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 if that spills out into sharing it with others. The glory of God is something that he says he will never share, but there's another sense in which the glory of God is designed to be shared. The greatest motivation for missions is not guilt or duty or even exhortation. It is a heart so saturated with the glory of God 
that sharing the gospel amounts to a, a spilling over of what you are experiencing when you are beholding the glory of God. You're just getting everybody around you wet. And that's the essence of evangelism. Now, I want to handle all of the alls in verses 18 through 20 together. Because it helps us to understand the, the cumulative weight of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So when Jesus says in verse 18, go therefore, he means go therefore in light of the fact that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. What a word to his worshipers and what a word to his doubters. He's essentially saying, hey, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. For my money, this is the most audacious thing that Jesus ever said. Of course, it's perfectly true and perfectly timed. Jesus proved over and over and over again in Matthew's gospel that he had authority like no other person. But one of the accusations against Jesus at the very end of his life was that despite all the great things he did for others, he didn't appear to have ultimate authority. Certainly not over the Romans, and most certainly not over death itself. The accusation was because he can't save himself from death. But his all-inclusive claim is strikingly clear here. All authority, not just on earth, but in heaven, has been given to me. Sometime after he bodily ascended into heaven, he gave John the revelation that serves as the last book of the New Testament. And here he said, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Therefore, as the reigning king of the universe who possesses all authority and whose kingdom will have no end, think of the imagery of Daniel 7 that we have talked about a couple of different times in Matthew's gospel. The king now, in light of his authority, commands his subjects. And he commands his subjects to go. To go and tell the world the good news about his life and death and resurrection. That is, tell them the good news of the glorious gospel. To go here means as you go. In other words, while you're going to wherever God is leading you, make disciples, whether that is across the kitchen table or the high chair or across the aisle or across the driveway 
or across the lunchroom or the county or the country or the ocean? How far does Jesus command us to go? I mean, he's so clear, literally everywhere, to all nations, of all people types, in all locations, speaking any language, no matter how isolated or how hostile they may be to your coming. You begin to get a sense of the all-encompassing magnitude of this commission. It's a commission befitting a king who has been given all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth. This specific command is why Art and I have, have taught a turbo class on discipleship to our body multiple times. We're seeking on behalf of the elders to equip the saints for ministry, to fulfill this great commission. During that training, we typically repeat again and again, we want to equip you where you are to make disciples wherever you go. It comes right from these verses. And it's perfectly consistent with the charge of this commission. This command of Jesus proves that relational discipleship is biblical. It's doable. And because we're serving the greatest king imaginable, it's also enjoyable. As the famous missionary to Africa, David Livingstone, once said, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor... How can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? This is also why we as a church are committed to sharing by declaring and discipling and why we are committed to serving by demonstrating the impact of the gospel for the sake of others and ultimately, ultimately to display the glory of God. We do it because it is a commission given by our king, and we do it because it is a joyful celebration of our king. And when we do it, we do it for the glory of God. What we mean by that is described here in these last few verses. We mean the glory of the one true God. For the first time, very specifically described in the New Testament here as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are called to baptize people into a new identity because now they belong to God. And we are called to baptize them into full fidelity. Verse 19. Jesus wants us to model and to teach and to require full allegiance to absolutely everything he taught. That's a high standard. A standard that constantly drives us to the gospel itself to free us. Because we recognize that that Jesus is the only one who has ever not only fulfilled the law on our behalf, but fulfilled this very commission himself. For the record, he came further than he's sending any of us to go. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about it this way, but because Jesus 
commands us to teach others to observe absolutely everything that he has commanded. It's one of the reasons we preach through the Bible expositionally. So that we are teaching the whole counsel of God. One of the primary reasons is to fulfill the Great Commission. Because the Great Commission involves both a sense of urgency and a dogged determination to a long obedience in the same direction. Brothers and sisters, praise God for the gospel that frees us to declare a message so radical. We need the message itself to fully depend on God so that we might freely delight in its demands. When we first began our study of Matthew, I mentioned that as we walk through this gospel over the next two years, some of you snickered because you thought he's got to be exaggerating, right? And it turns out it wasn't. I mentioned in the very first message that we'll need to think about where we need to be convicted, consoled, and compelled by the life and the ministry of Jesus. Now, I trust, because this is God's Word and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, that there have been times where you have been convicted or consoled by God as we've walked through the last two years. But now, on point in specific application to our verses, may the Holy Spirit compel us to not waste the time we spent together in Matthew, but to maximize it by going anywhere to anyone sharing the good news about our resurrected and now our ascended king. We began this morning, and I conclude this morning, with a sense of urgency. And the reason is described well by Carl Henry, who said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. But despite this urgent reality, we can be exceedingly confident because no matter what obstacles we face in the sharing of the good news of the gospel, read the last verse of the book. Our king has promised to be with us. Our king has promised to be with us always to the very end of the age. And that is good news. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for incorporating your thoughts in writing. Thank you for inspiring common men to write down exactly what happened in the life and ministry of your son. Lord, I pray that you would, in response to not just this call, 
But in response to the last two years, I pray that you would cause our hearts to be overwhelmed to the point of spilling over as we realize that no matter what we hold up against Jesus, Jesus proves to be better. To that end, would you lead us in worship now by the power of your spirit, I ask in his glorious name. Amen.